Ecclesiastes 5, starting at verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both, are, both others are higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners, except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart, and what do they gain, since their toil is for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction and anger. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. I've seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions and honour so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. He comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity. Do not all go to the same place. Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? Thank you, Steve. Um, it is a, a complex passage, this one. There's some difficult things in there. So please do keep your Bibles handy. Um, 
We want to learn from this text. We want to learn from what God is saying to us from this text. And so it'll be helpful if you can see it as we're doing that uh, and keep referring back to it. Uh, It occurred to me, well, it's occurred to me a few times, but it occurred to me again over the weekend uh, that humanity has a bit of a confidence problem. uh, And by that, I mean an overconfidence problem. Uh, we're, We're too confident in our own ability. Um, I realised this as we drove over the Seacliff Bridge, which is north of Wollongong. I don't know if you've ever been there, but you've got to kind of picture the place. You've got uh, Wollongong, there it is, uh, sitting on the flats. Uh, You've got the Illawarra Escarpment, these cliffs behind it. And as you drive north, they come closer together and, and eventually the cliffs meet the sea. And you think, well, how do you build a road north there? Surely it's got to stop. You can't build on a cliff. Well... Apparently that's how you do it. Um, and it's, it's spectacular. It's pretty good to drive. But, but that's what we do, isn't it? You know, if we, if we can't build a road on the land, let's build it in the water. Why not? We can find a way. Or maybe, maybe you've driven into Milford Sound uh, in New Zealand. Now, it's a long drive. You, you drive uh, increasingly through mountainous terrain. You, you're picking your way through these valleys and you know, you've got these snow-capped peaks and glaciers all around you with rainforest. It's absolutely spectacular. And you wind your way to the end of this valley and you think there's going to be a small pass and you're going to go over and, and down into Milford Sound. But no, the, the, the valley ends blind and you drive basically up to an enormous cliff. What do you do there? Well, you can't go over it. So you go, you can't really see it, through it. <laughs> uh, it's a, I think it's 1.2 k's, the tunnel. Uh, and you go straight under a mountain. Um, not because there's anything particularly important in Milford Sound, it's a tourist attraction. <laughs> but, but that's what you do. If you need to get somewhere, you make a way. And it struck me that that kind of, that kind of encapsulates how humanity works, doesn't it? If we can't see an immediately apparent way, let's make a way. You know, if the world doesn't suit us, uh, let's change it. If it's not going our way, let's make it our way. We're just so confident, aren't we? You know, if life doesn't suit us, let's make it suit us. Let's manipulate the conditions of our world so it fits us. And so we strive and we work to create this world, to create a life that's going to be good for us. You know, that achieves what we want. And sometimes it works. But sometimes it doesn't. And the teacher wants to remind us of that in this passage today. Because there's problems here. And he wants to kind of peel back the the, the layers here to expose the issues with that way of life. And he wants to challenge them. to, To make us stop and think. But not just for the sake of it. He also wants to point us to a hope that exists for us. Because what we're really after, joy and and rest, you know, the ability to enjoy what we have, those things can be had. They, They actually are out there. But not by controlling the world, by accepting it. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Now, we want to bring about a desirable life. We want to create the conditions for a good life uh, by our own efforts. We want to seize control of the world and, and shape it our own way. But the teacher says there's an issue there. In fact, there's a couple of issues. And he wants to show us what those issues are. Uh, the first issue is people. 
Uh, have a look again at verse 8 and 9 of chapter 5 with me. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one and over them both a higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Now, the, there's some odd phrasing in there. It's, it's really tricky to translate uh, exactly um, how this, this, uh, this argument is going. But the point that the teacher is making is reasonably simple. He's saying, if you look at a land and you see corruption, you see oppression, um, don't be surprised at that. Don't think it's an isolated thing. He says the rot goes all the way to the top. If you see corrupt officials, you know, low-level government, there's probably an issue at the very top of the chain as well. It's a top-down problem. That Those in power seek more power. The rest of us just have to make do with the situation we live in. He's saying you can live as you like, but ultimately it's the leadership of the land that you live in that's going to shape how your life goes. Regardless of your efforts, your, your control over your life is swept up in theirs. That's problem number one. Problem number two is dissatisfaction. You see it in uh, verse 10 to 12. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Whoever loves Lego, sorry, that's not actually there, needs more. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefits, uh, benefit are they to their owners, except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. It's never enough. doesn't matter how much you have, all you gather, all you strive for, it, it, at the end of the day, it doesn't satisfy because here's the bind the teacher says. You work and you work, and yet you could always have more. And when you have more, then better comes out, and you could have that as well. There's no end to this striving. Where do you stop? Let alone the fact that the more you have, the more others want to take from you or share in what you have. You know, the more riches you have, the more costs you have, the more liabilities you have, the more taxes you have to pay, the more others want to, you know, be your friend and enjoy the fruits of your labour. And at the end of the day, the teacher says, that's it, isn't it? You work, others enjoy. You're trying to carve out a life for yourself, but you never get to rest in it and enjoy it. How meaningless. That's problem number two. Here's problem number three. Chance. Look at verse 13 to 17. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when they have children there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb and as everyone comes so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes so they depart and what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction and anger. Say you do work, the teacher says. Say you do gather and you, you, you meet success and you, you, you start to get stuff. How do you know you won't lose it all in some bad venture? In some misfortune, he says. 
I mean, it's not impossible to, to imagine, is it? Crazier things have happened. Uh, you know, if you rewind back to the, the 20s in the last century, uh, inflation in, in Germany got to such a point that a barrel, of, uh, sorry, a wheelbarrow of money was what you needed to buy a loaf of bread. <laughs> like, imagine you've spent your whole life gathering money like that and, and you know, an armful can't even buy you breakfast. Who knows what could be around the corner? All your wealth, all this control that you've carved out, how fleeting it is. You entered this world naked, you're going to leave this world naked, and for what? Frustration, affliction, anger. See, here's the bind, says the teacher. In all your efforts to strive and to gain and to, to create a life that is pleasing to yourself, in all of it, you're actually powerless. So much of the world is beyond your control and you will forever be bumping up against those limitations. You, I mean, you pretend it's not. You work as if it's not. You, you try and, and gain control and manipulate and... and change life to your advantage and create circumstances for joy and happiness, but at the end of the day, you can't. Because most of the world is far beyond you. You know, a new, a new government's elected and they change policies. New taxes come in, a sudden disaster comes along and your life, your world crumbles. And all that joy you have tried to carve out, it vanishes It's a bit like trying to grow a mango tree in Tasmania. I, I would love to grow a mango tree. I mean, mangoes are delicious and expensive. That makes it the best tree you could ever grow. I mean, you save money and you get the best fruit ever. Like, anyway, it would be great. But you could try, couldn't you? Uh, you could import the seeds, I guess. Um, you could prepare, you know, the perfect patch of soil in your garden. You could weed it and, and feed it and mulch it and do all that sort of stuff. You could do your research and prepare the, the perfect conditions for growing mangoes. Uh, you could plant your seed. You can tend your seed. You can dote over your seed. You know, every morning you're out there, you know, brushing it clean and, you know, being, you know protecting it from everything. And then one frost... And it's gone. There are factors beyond your control that will frustrate your plans over and over and over again. That's how life works under the sun. You can strive and strive to manipulate this world and shape this world so that you can create joy for yourself, whether it be today or perhaps in some future time, only to watch all of it come crumbling down into nothing. It's so fragile, isn't it? You know, one wrong move, one bad investment. You know, I mean, things beyond your control. You know, the, the, the company that manages your, your super goes into receivership. You lose everything. You know, um, one global financial crisis, one small disaster in our area, one bad diagnosis from the doctor, and it's gone. It's meaningless. How futile. So how do you live in this world then? 
<laughs> How do we respond to this, this frustration of control that we can't have? Um, I learned the other day that there's a saying in the US military, um, I guess this is probably in the lower levels, but they say, embrace the suck. That's their saying, embrace the suck. Nothing ever happens as it should. Things always go wrong, so embrace the suck. But I mean, that's pretty grim, isn't it? Is that really the best we can do? Life sucks, just accept it. <laughs> well, the teacher has an alternative, and it's there in verse 18. This is what he says. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to drink, uh, to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and to be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. If you fight against the restrictions uh, and the boundaries of your control, uh, you're only in for more pain. You can't change them. You can't move them. But that doesn't mean you just have to live, you know, kind of sucking up you know, exactly where you are and just kind of dealing with the, the pain that you ex experience. The teacher says, enjoy the good things in life. Be thankful for what you already have. But actually, he says far more than that. Don't just be thankful for what you have, but understand where those things come from. There is a place of joy. There is a person of joy, and that joy is given, the teacher says. Um, the NIV has at the end of verse 20 there, um, gladness of heart. Um, the word is, is more literally just joy. There is joy in this life, but that joy is not grabbed hold of that joy is given, and it's given by God. Rather than an empty uh, striving, rather than a futile attempt at control with you know, constant reminders of our impotence, God is able to fill our life, He's able to occupy our life and, and, and bring that joy that we're looking for. And this is not just you know, a day-to-day -day happiness depending on our circumstances, this is a deep-seated enjoyment true pleasure, true rich happiness that's unmoved by the circumstances of life. That is what God is able to give. It's not reached by our effort. It's received from Him. Now, that's not a thought isolated to the teacher. Um, that's not something that we just find here. It's a thought that's picked up in the New Testament. Um, this is what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. This is what he says. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, that is, you know, think that wealth can, can shelter you or bring you joy, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. See, that's the key, isn't it? Rather than putting your hope for, for joy in what you and your, your limited power have managed to carve out of life. Put your hope instead in God who's made this world and made this life, in, in what he's remaking of this life. So we, we know what he's doing is good. 
I mean, we, see, we only have to look at Jesus to see what he's trying to do. I mean, look at what Jesus came to this earth and did. He, he healed, he fed, he gave, he, he restored things and made them right. He pointed to what God is trying to do with this world. And it's good. You are powerless to shape the world to your desires. Your wealth, your learning, your experience, there are so many things beyond you that will make it all count for nothing. But God is powerful. And God is good. And when you put your hope in him, when you trust in him, that is the path to a joy that exists no matter what else is happening in your life. But there is more to this picture because the teacher wants to keep going. He wants to keep exposing our, our misplaced confidence because there's another frustration ahead. We can have it all, we can get it all and still find in it all not the rest, uh, no rest. Look at chapter 6, uh, verse 1. I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor, so that they lack nothing in their heart's desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity." Do not all go to the same place. And we kind of have a summary statement there in, in verses 1 and 2, and then a, a story, an illustrating story in verses 3 to 6. And it, it's a really awful picture, isn't it? Uh, some people do get it all. Some people get wealth and honour and prosperity, but they don't get the ability to enjoy it, to, to rest in it and to make the most of it. How futile and meaningless that is. To have it all and never have the space to enjoy it. To, to gain everything. To work and work, to have, you know, a hundred children, to, to live 2,000 years <laughs> and never to find rest. How meaningless. In fact, the teacher says, as, as graphic and horrible as it is, that that person is actually worse off than a stillborn child. They have more rest than them. them. There is something about us that is insatiable. There is something about us that defies rest. The grass is always greener. There's always one more thing ahead. And it's meaningless. Look at what the teacher says in verse 7 through 9. Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. 
We are never satisfied. We are constantly restless, looking for more, looking for better, looking for something else. And as a result, we are frustrated and we are exhausted. We have a life of striving with no end in sight and it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And worse, we are powerless to change that. Look at what the teacher says in verse 10 and 12, uh, to 12. Whatever exists has already been named and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? See, we, we are so limited, the teacher says. We, 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 there's nothing new for us to, to, to explore. There's no thing that we haven't done already. There's, we're, we're, we're limited in ability. We're unable to shape this world. We're, we're unable to free ourselves from this futile maze that we find ourselves in. And despite how much we protest to the contrary, we are helpless. Now, several years ago, the, um, the AFL ran a pre-season ad campaign. You know, every year they do it before the season starts to get you fired up and make you want to watch the footy again. And it's always, you know, kind of stirring. This one stuck in my memory. It was, it was pretty impressive. Um, they had, through the ads, a whole bunch of players... Uh, quoting poetry, which you know is pretty impressive already, footy players and poetry. But, <laughs> but anyway, during this interspersed, uh, there were all these stirring scenes. You know, the, the specky marks and the, the great goals and tackles of the year before, uh, and the, the poem that they were quoting was Invictus. And you might have might have heard it. Uh, this is a couple of the lines: my, "My unconquerable soul, my head is bloody but unbowed." Now you can kind of picture it. You know the gruff footy players, you know, mumbling these lines, uh, you know, with dramatic scenes and, you know, lighting and music. And, and this is how it ends. This is the final, the final line. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I mean, it, it was a stirring ad. Like, it, it, it got you fired up. I can't, I can't wait for the season to see what these players are going to do with, with this. But is it true? I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Is that true? You know, when that same player who's just been quoting those lines a few weeks later does an ACL season over, is it true? I am the master of my fate. <laughs> Were they the master of that? Was that deliberate? Did they choose that? I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? Or are we not as in control as we think we are? Are we not masters of fate, but instead helpless pawns before fate? You know, blown to and fro by the winds of this world? I mean, that's shattering, isn't it? How, how terrifying to, to stand in the face of events that we have no power to influence or direct at all. To, to realise that we are helpless and impotent and puny next to a world that just rolls on completely irregardless of us. Entirely ignorant of our plans and dreams and hopes because it just doesn't care.
if I'm not in control, if we're all helpless, is that simply it? Does the world roll on, aimless and pointless? If so, why bother? Or is there someone? Is there a hand at the wheel? Well, the teacher says yes. It's actually very subtle, but it's there in verse 10. Um, the, the ESV makes it a bit more plain, so I'll read that translation. It is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Do, do you hear the implication? This is what man is, but there is someone stronger. There is a stronger someone. We can't speak the world into being. We can't shape the world to make it what we want it to be. But there is someone bigger than us. There is one who can. Now, for us, that, that all seems very ambiguous. We think, well, who is this mysterious other? Um, but remember, this is written from a Hebrew worldview. And in that, you don't even have to write who it is. It's, very, it's assumed who it is. The teacher is talking about God. God is the stronger, God is the bigger, God is the more powerful one here. We can't direct this world, we can't shape this world. We're utterly powerless before it. But God isn't. God is powerful. Now that might be terrifying for you. You know, you get that line from, you know, resistance is futile. That, that kind of, that could almost be the fuel, the takeaway here, isn't it? That, that might even be more scary. But this is how Jesus spoke of that, that control, that, that power of God. This is how he, he talks of it in Matthew chapter 6. Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. That is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? The pagans run after all these things, that your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Don't worry, Jesus says. Don't stress about what you can and can't control. I mean, most of it you can't. You can't even add a single hour to your life. Uh, or literally centimetre to your height. But you don't need to worry. You don't need to worry because God isn't a tyrant. God is a father. A good father. Now, I'm not real bright, um, but when Rufus cries, I can generally work out what he wants. I mean, there's only three options. <laughs> it's like food, nappy, sleep. I can usually figure it out, usually by trial and error. Uh, if I can figure that out, how much more can God figure out what you need? What is good for you as his children? I don't know if you noticed those questions at the end of Ecclesiastes. Right, right at the end of our passage there in verse 12, there's two questions. For who knows what is good for a person in life? During the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow. God does. Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? God does. It's not, not a hopeless, whimpering end, is it? It's, it's, a, it's a glad end. It's a triumphant end. God knows and he's told us. We only have to look at Jesus to see. 
See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. That's what he tells us in, in 1 John chapter 3. In Jesus, we are forgiven our futile, God-abandoning efforts to control the world without him. In Jesus, we are welcomed back, not as, not as strangers, but as children adopted into his family. In Jesus, we are rescued from the futility that death brings and given life beyond the grave forever. And so, yes, in this world, there are things that you are powerless to change. Under the sun, there are boundaries that you cannot move. There are things you cannot uh, adjust to your liking. But with respect to God, you are utterly free. Horizontally limited, yes. Vertically in perfect relationship. So live for him. Jesus has come so you could have life and have it to the full. That's his promise to you. So do. Don't meaninglessly strive for things you cannot change, but enjoy what he gives. That rest and joy and peace that only he can provide. All these things you have strived so aimlessly for, they are given freely in him. So at the end of the day, trust him and hope in him. If you try to control your world to find these things, you will only ever be devastated because your, your plans will forever be interrupted and frustrated and come to nothing. If you trust God's control of this world, his good control, yes, you'll be frustrated when your plans are interrupted, but you will never be devastated because those plans weren't your hope. God is. So ask yourself, how do you feel when things don't go your way? How do you react when your plans fail? When things that you have worked long and hard for come to nothing. How revealing is our reaction? It's a bit humbling, isn't it? How often is uncovered a heart that yearns to control life? Well, stop, the teacher says. Repent and turn back. Stop trying to control the world and submit your life to the control of God, your good and gracious and generous Father. Trust him and there you will find that joy and rest that you are looking for, that you want so badly. And not fleetingly will you find it, but in Jesus forever. Let's come to him in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we confess that we just so want to control life. We fool ourselves into thinking that by our efforts we can create the world, world that we want, that we can manipulate things around us to suit us. But Lord, as your word shows us again, the truth is we are powerless. Only you are powerful. And so we humbly ask for your forgiveness. May you forgive us for the times that we have tried to seize the control that belongs rightly only to you.
Forgive us for thinking that we're in control, for thinking that it's all about us. Father, instead, help us to trust you. Lord, we know that you're good. We see that so clearly in Jesus, in the love and grace that you've lavished on us in him. So please help us. Help us to trust you. Help us to hope in you and in your good plan, in your great love for us. That we would cease striving for what we can't get and accept instead graciously all that you give to us. We pray this in Jesus' name.